All right. I will ask for a volunteer to open in prayer if I have one. Tyson, would I be able to bug you? All right, so we are back into it here, and I have to apologize. The week that we were gone, I misfired in my communication with Tim, and so I guess we went back and covered some other stuff, so I will take responsibility for that. I apologize. By my records, we are on chapter 5, section 5. Does that make sense to everyone else? 5-5? Which is on page 20. If I'm not hearing any opposition, then I will assume that it is 5-5. Five, five. So turn to page 20, and we'll read that, and then we will work through this. And it's a, it's a bit of a bigger one, but hopefully we can make it through here today. <clears throat> the perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows His own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on Him, to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin, and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of His elect happens by His appointment for His glory and for their good. And let's look at the supporting texts here. Uh, For footnote 15, which is the bulk of this section here, we've got 2 Chronicles 32, 25 through 31. And who wants to take that? Do I have a volunteer for 2 Chronicles? Ray? And then who wants to take 2 Corinthians 12? Have a volunteer to read that? Ronald? Okay. And we've discussed sometimes they chop these verses up a little bit. It's easier reading if we just read start to finish. So, Ray, uh, just read 25 through 31 there in chapter 32, if you would. Thank you. 
Good, thanks, Ray. So this is a story probably many of us are familiar with, that Hezekiah was a proud man, was humbled, and then we see uh, a span of productive years after uh, his pride had been brought low and he humbled himself. And this isn't the only story like this in the Bible. There's plenty of others as well where we see that God's hand is heavy on someone their heart is softened, and then they move on to productive years. <clears throat> um, and so on this, this testing here, and that's what this is supporting here, is the fact that God often allows His children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. Can anyone in this room sympathize with this or feel familiar with this? Has God ever brought you through a season as your pride was building where suddenly his hand of providence is heavy on you and things start to look different after God's hand is heavy for long enough? I'm guessing you are much softer people than I am, so maybe those seasons haven't lasted as long for you. Would anyone care to share an experience? Don't, I'm not putting anyone on the spot, but... If we can see ourselves in a text like this, would anyone care to share? And maybe it's too personal, that's fine. I can break the ice. And I've shared before, when we started farming, was probably the most pivotal time in my life, I would say, where there was just and I wasn't even aware of it until after God broke me into little pieces. But there's just this pride and this self-sufficiency that just starts crawling up. And for me, it was being 27 and starting a farm from scratch and being happily married and three little, or two at the time, little kids. And it just felt like I had life by the tail. And I had everything I wanted, even right down to the exact farm that I prayed that we would be able to buy, the one where I grew up on. And everything just seemed to come up my way. And if you would have asked me if that was God, I would have said, yeah. But deep down, it was because I had worked really hard for this. Right? I had a plan. I worked hard. I was dedicated. And so, therefore, it's going to work for me. And I had everything I wanted. And I just was the most miserable I've been in my entire life. All I, all I could do was sleep and cry and get my work done. And it was empty. And God brought me through a very deep season of depression. And I started to see things much differently after that. He's had to do it a few times since then. Because I'm still proud and I'm still self-sufficient. Like Hezekiah or Nebuchadnezzar on a small scale. <clears throat> but this is how God frequently works. He, lets us, he gives us enough rope. He gives us enough of a taste of ourselves so that we're full with it. Right? And then he pulls us back in. Now, 
and I don't want to cut it off if someone else has something that they'd like to share on this front, but I, I also understand some of these things are personal, so I won't force anyone. I sometimes think, I believe it's in Psalms where David's talking about these proud people, and it talks about them sitting at this table, eating their fill, drinking and eating, until they vomit all over the table. And I often think, isn't that how our sin works? Right? Our sin, we, we fill ourselves up so much with sin, and it starts to come out of us that it's destroying us, and yet we keep doing it. Right? What's the last thing a drunk needs? Is what he goes for next. Right? Isn't that amazing? And we just destroy ourselves, and then God describes this as vomiting all over the table, but then you still go for more. That's how sin works. It's the law of diminishing returns. We need more and more and more to get less and less of a fix. And it works that way with so much stuff. Another one I always think of where the punishment fits the crime is you read about all these young men suffering from erectile dysfunction because of pornography. Well, doesn't that crime fit the sin? Right? It's like a drunk drinking himself to death or a drug addict. But if we are Christians, then those seasons don't last forever. That's not the final state of things. If we are Christians, then this is preparing for a season of humility and of softness. Who wants to read 2 Corinthians 12? Who had that one? Ron? Okay, so we probably, who's, who's heard of Paul's thorn in the flesh? We probably all have, right? Any guesses what it was? Do we know what it was? We are not told. What are, has anyone heard any guesses of what it might be? Keenan's saying it's possibly a physical disability. One suggestion I've heard is that it's poor eyesight, because we know some people wrote his letters for him, and I think it's in Galatians. He says, do you see what large letters I'm writing to you with? Some have suggested maybe it's partial blindness, but we, we, we really don't know. Maybe it was a physical thing. Maybe it was some kind of spiritual affliction. We really don't know. It doesn't say. <clears throat> now, if you're the Apostle Paul, and you're suffering whatever this thorn in the flesh is, whatever it is, and you've asked God to take it away from you three times, and God has seen fit not to take it away from you, that is a sign that you are under God's judgment and He doesn't love you, right? Does it feel like that when you're in a season like that? If you're like me, you start looking for the sin that brought this about. 
That's where my default mind goes to is what sin brought this on me? I need to go fix it up because I am a problem solver mindset. And so life just works like a math equation. And it's at 43, I should know it's not a math equation, but that seems to be the way I'm wired. And maybe you are too. So what was the purpose here, according to Paul's own testimony, what's the purpose of this affliction that he deals with? Yep. My uh, grandpa once told me, some of you knew my grandpa, he was a very quiet man, he didn't speak easily at all. And he became a Christian when he was 18, and he told me that he was behind the barn in, a, in the snow, bringing in cows, and he realized it was time to make things right with the Lord. And he did, and then he said, the first thought that came into my mind, of course he said it in low German, which makes it much more meaningful, but I'll say it in English, he said, no, nah, it's going to be so dumb, I'm going to have to be a deacon yet. And... <laughs> And he, he could tell that to me in safety because he had just retired from being a deacon for many, many years. But there was just this dread that he would be in some kind of public ministry position. Um, and he really did not want that at all. And he cited this verse, my grace is sufficient for you. He realized that at that moment. Whatever God has for me, now that I'm a Christian, whatever God has for me, God's grace will be sufficient. And if you knew him, you knew that public positions of anything wouldn't have been for him, but God used him in that. And perhaps some of us are in positions we didn't expect or didn't want to be in, and God can work with that as well. He does work with it. Anyone have something there that they'd like to share? Being thrust into a position you didn't want, and then seeing that God's grace will get you through? Quite a bunch this morning. Amen to that. A year and a half ago, this would have been com- this would have been completely impossible in my mind. I grew up at. Yeah. Ray's character is more like my grandpa's character than mine is. Yeah, I can understand that. Yep. And yet, for Inga and for Ray, has God been good in it? Yep. And that's not just for church leaders. I'm sure, well, this didn't exist even a year ago. None of us expected to be here a year ago. And we're all here. Life happens. 
God does tough things, but that doesn't, that's not a sign of his disfavor. Sometimes it's a sign of his favor if life is tough, right? Very often it is a sign of his favor. It's time for your next promotion. That's usually the end of a, of a struggling season is our next big promotion. And we need the eyes of faith to see that. It's pretty tough to see that when you're walking through a trial, isn't it? One pastor I know who had gone, recount told this a number of years ago, he had gone through a very, very difficult season in the church and not sure what to do. And the local media got a hold of, well, it was a, someone in the church had turned out to not be the person that they thought they were. And the authorities got involved. And then, of course, the media got involved. And now this church and this pastor and everyone is having their name dragged through the mud very publicly. And it was very difficult. And this guy's wife was struggling. And so he went and he bought a bottle of wine on his way home and picked up supper and came home all cheerful. I guess we're ready for our next big promotion. <laughs> God's really putting us through the ringer. Let's celebrate. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's a bold strategy, but I like it. Uh, and he was saying this on the other side of it, and so God had brought them through that. He had. And, and it actually turned out to be a, a season of incredible blessing for the church, because as more and more of the, the truth of the situation came out, um, it, it gave the church actually exposure in the community that they hadn't had before. And the, the church nearly doubled through that. And I'm not someone who thinks you can measure the health of a church by its size necessarily. Um, but God works in unique ways sometimes. And then Romans 8.28, who wants to take that? I didn't see who that was. Yannicka? Okay. Amen. This is a verse all Christians should know like the back of their hand. All, all portions of Scripture are God-breathed and inerrant and, perp- and useful. And yet, if you are going to a hospital room to say goodbye to someone, you're probably not going to read a genealogy from Chronicles. What you're probably going to do is go to Romans 8. And I had the great pleasure, actually, with all three of my grandmas, I gained a grandma through marriage, of being in their hospital room as they were getting close to death. And I always go to Romans 8 because it's just truly wonderful, the promises of God, that He will never leave us or forsake us, and that even death can't separate us from the love of God. And so this is the verse that I always go to when I say that if you are a Christian, there are only two events that can happen in your life. If you've heard me say this before, what are they? There's only two events. Happy blessings and hard blessings. Those are the only two things that can happen in your life if you are a Christian. Okay? Everything that happens in your life is for your good and for God's glory. And sometimes it's very obviously good. The birth of a new baby. You get married. You buy a house. You start a business and it goes well. Those are the happy blessings, right? Those are the ones we want to be a part of. 
There's other blessings, like a sick kid, or cancer, or a tough stretch in your marriage. Those are blessings from God. And they feel a little bit like when you're six and mom gets you underwear and socks for Christmas, right? It's not exciting, but it's what you need, right? Did Hezekiah need a tough season? Did Moses need to be thrust into a speaking position that he wasn't ready for? Did the Apostle Paul need some kind of struggle so he didn't get proud being a super apostle? Do you need the challenges that have been unique to your life? You do. And they're custom designed by God to fit you. Okay? Suffering and pain in the world is not random. It's custom built for you. They're exactly the ones you need to have. Okay? We don't live in a random universe. We live in a universe, after all, what we're discussing here is providence. Okay? Our struggles are hand built by God for you to deal with your struggles, your sin, and prepare you for heaven. It's training, it's getting us ready for heaven. Snuffing out the sin that remains in our life. And we probably don't think that way by default. And that's maybe a, a point I'll stop at and ask, do we think of our struggles as being custom built for us? Is that where your head goes? Isn't it always the other guy's fault? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does it require considerable change in thinking to see God, God sent me this? It must be good for me. This must be addressing my particular sin, which is different than my neighbor's particular sin. I hope Tanya won't get upset with me. I'll share one example of this isn't the default setting for me at all. Two weeks ago, we were at a marriage retreat and uh, on the way home, we were talking about, well, all things pertaining to life and marriage. And one thing that God has blessed me with tremendously, Tanya probably wouldn't say the same because her and me married different people. But to me, marriage has been very easy. It really has. Marriage has never felt like hard work. I'm sure for her, it often feels like it. But I married an easy person. Um, and the, there's something in the back of my head, even knowing all this, it feels like, you know what, I got through all the tough marriage stuff from age zero till age 12. So this is kind of God's reward for me having dealt with it back there, right? Marriage looked like a struggle when I was a kid because of my uh, upbringing, and now I'm being rewarded with a happy marriage that just seems to be pretty easy. And almost as soon as I think that thought, it's like, okay, <laughs> what's coming? Right? What's coming next? Because that's a proud thought. That's a karma thought. Right? That's a thought that says that everyone's life kind of equals out by the end. So every, you know, there's a fixed amount of suffering that everyone's going to go through, and some get it over with early, some have it later. But 
Look around at the people in your life. Some people's life just seems to be almost without suffering. And some people's entire life is suffering. I often think of people that have chronic pain and they have to work with chronic pain from the time they're 28. I can't imagine what it would be like to work with chronic pain. Because I get grumpy if my back hurts for four days. Right? It, it's, there's not a fixed amount of suffering that everyone has to go through. Life is different for different people. And so to think that an easy stretch is a reward for a tough stretch, that is not a Christian way of thinking at all. Suffering's for our good. Anyone have something they'd like to add to that? Is it easy to think that easy seasons are a reward for having slogged through the tough seasons? Does God ever owe us an easy season? And that's maybe where we got to go with this. If God gave us what we deserved, what would life be like? Miserable. And when would the misery end? Never. Never. Yep, very true. Yeah, and that's an important point because this is happening, we're discussing this in the chapter on providence. If we take the naturalistic kind of mechanical view of the universe, that this is just how hydrogen reacts under these conditions, our suffering really means nothing, right? This is just the machinery turning, and I got caught in it, and it means nothing. That's the alternative view to saying that God's hand is in this, through this. He's doing this. And if we can see that, then we can see how it's for our good, right? God sent me this trouble. So can we all retrain our brains to think about suffering differently? I think I might have shared it in a message once, but one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, in one devotional piece, he wrote about um, struggling with 
suffering and affliction. And he said, don't look at who brought your trouble. Look at who sent it. Okay, do you see what he's saying there? Don't look at who brought your trouble. Okay, because often there's other people involved in our suffering, right? Who sent that guy to you? God did. God sent that difficult guy to you. Why? Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he needs to encounter grace. Maybe you need to learn patience. Okay? So don't look at who brought your trouble. Look at who sent it and what he is accomplishing. So we can lay hold of Romans eight twenty-eight. It's for our good. <clears throat> Anything else to add here? Yeah, and if yeah, and as a Christian, we'd have to say in a roundabout way, yeah. Yep. No trouble falls on us that God does not have a hand in. And if we say He has no hand in it, that means He got overpowered by the forces of nature, or He didn't see what was coming. Okay, we got to think through the consequences of ideas here. If God saw something coming to someone, he saw a tsunami coming, uh, and he knows all and he sees it, then we have to ask, well, does God have power over the wind and the waves? Mm -hmm. Has he ever stopped a storm from happening to spare people? Okay, so now we've established God sees it. God can stop it if he wants. And if he doesn't stop it, what does that mean? means it's arriving right on time. Yeah, and that's hard for us to think in those terms, but I think we have to because then we can see purpose, we can see meaning, and we can find comfort even in the midst of a struggle. God's not losing an arm wrestle against the laws of nature. Let's move on. Section 6. God, as the righteous judge, sometimes blinds and hardens wicked and ungodly people because of their sins. He withholds His grace from them, by which they could have been enlightened in their understanding and had their hearts renewed. Not only that, but sometimes He also takes away the gifts they already had and exposes them to situations that their corrupt natures turn into opportunities for sin. Moreover, He gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan so that they harden themselves in response to the same influences that God uses to soften others. We've probably all heard this thing about the, uh, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Right? You've probably all heard that expression. So why does the sun, why does the heat of the sun soften one thing and harden another? What well, has to do with the nature of the thing itself? Right? What, what's the nature of the thing we're dealing with? And What we just read was the nature of the thing we're dealing with in section 5 is a believer, someone whose heart has been softened, someone who has been born again, and so someone who sees their suffering as an opportunity for growth. And now we're dealing with unrighteous people who are hardened by their circumstance. 
Okay? So now affliction works differently in these people than it does in the believer. Who wants to take Romans 1? Andrew? And then who wants to take Romans 11? Kenan? Okay, go ahead if you're ready, Andrew. And keep going through the end of 28. Is there any contemporary application of this passage? No? I know, it's hard to see, isn't it? It's hard to see. Here's the logic of this. And you'll, you'll hear this sometimes if you follow kind of Christian academic debates between liberals and conservatives. Increasingly, you'll hear, well, I'll ask, what was the sin of Sodom? What's that? Homosexuality, yes. And for that very reason, when homosexual acts were criminal in this country, it was called sodomy, named after the city of Sodom. Okay? And I prefer to use the word sodomy. Um, you'll almost never hear me talk about homosexuality. I will say sodomy, one, because it refers to the act, and two, because it accurately depicts the shame in the action. Okay? Same reason I won't talk about common law marriage. I'll talk about fornication. Because there is no common law marriage. Okay? There's either a recognized covenant between these people or they're having illicit sex. There's no middle ground. Okay? So sodomy is a shameful act. It's a degrading passion, the Bible says. And we should use language that reflects the shame in it. But what do you increasingly hear? No, no, no. That wasn't the sin of Sodom, because if you go back to the prophet Isaiah, he pinpoints the problem of Sodom somewhere else. What is it? Ingratitude. He says they weren't thankful, but we use the word sodomy to describe homosexual actions. What's going on here? Paul ties this up in a bow. Where does ingratitude get you? To sodomy. What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That makes no sense. (laughs) So if I'm unthankful, if a society is unthankful, they're going to end up giving in to homosexual lust? Yes, that's correct. If a society is unthankful, okay, who do you thank if there's no God? Who's there to thank? Yourself? Your hard work? Your effort? You become vain. 
Who do vain people love? Themselves. What is sodomy? Falling in love with a mirror. Okay? It's not a fluke that you find more uh, prevalence of these disordered desires in circles that are in circles that are all about aesthetics, right? Where do you see it? The arts, drama, okay? And, and that doesn't mean those things are wrong. Properly used, those things are all gifts from God. Drama is a gift from God. The visual arts, musical arts, it's a gift from God. So there's nothing wrong with this thing. But uh, there's this kind of indulgence. If it becomes self-indulgent, we don't see things as a gift from God. It becomes self-indulgent, and we fall in love with the mirror, Okay? which is why gay guys often have a better sense of fashion than straight guys, okay? And again, so fashion is wrong? No, it's not. It's good to be fashionable. There's nothing wrong with it. But you see, self-indulgence leads to falling in love with a mirror. And homosexuality is being in love with a mirror, okay? And it takes very effeminate forms, like it does in our culture, but in the past, it's also taken very masculine forms, in Roman society, homosexuality was the alpha male thing to do because women were second-tier humans. I'm so manly, I don't need a woman. Okay? That's not the way homosexuality picks up a cultural form in our time. In our time, it's very effeminate and soft. But in other times, it has been very kind of alpha male-oriented. But in both cases, it's vanity. Okay? And so what's Paul's logic here? You get God out of the system, there's no God to worship, there's no God to be thankful to, so what do we do? We turn in on ourselves. We worship the creation rather than the creator, and you end up falling in love with yourself, even to the point where an entire society can be given up to disordered sexual passions. Okay? If you want a 100,000-foot view of what I think is happening in our culture, God is giving us up. We are at the dead end of the rope. We have so turned in on ourselves that it's staggering if you see some of the statistics and the way some of these things gain momentum and people think differently. Um, it was somewhere in the 30% of Gen Zs that, uh, that identify either as transgender, bisexual, homosexual. That's a third. Okay? When I was a kid... 1% was kind of a stretch target. Like, it could be as much as 1% of the population is homosexual. Okay? And now if you're under 20, a third of the kids are answering that way. Okay? What's happening? Romans 1 is happening. Okay? It's happened before, and it's happening again. Um, this is what happens when a culture is in love with itself. You see, in Egypt, towards the end of Egypt... Think of some of the, the artistic and the uh, movie depictions of the Egyptian pharaohs. Do they look masculine? They're androgynous. There's makeup around their eyes. Okay? They, they look like you can't tell whether this is a man or a woman. What's happening? This is happening. And it's happening right before our eyes, and many Christians are accommodating it. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and I'll admit, uh, last week, 
Yeah, changing topics here a little bit, but this is how this stuff works. Speaking on divorce, for me, is very, very difficult for a number of reasons. But the Bible doesn't change because of what my experiences are or what your experiences are. But how often, because divorce is so prevalent, how easy would it be for the church to take a very soft stance? Well, you know, I can think of six people that are affected by this, so we better not talk about it so hard. What does that do? That robs Sonia and Karen and Caleb and Nathan of the opportunity to hear hard words before they've screwed up. Okay? They need to hear hard words now so that they are prevented from that. And yes, there's grace. Okay? Yes, there's grace for sodomy. There's grace for divorce. There's grace for all kinds of things. Okay? Uh, but we have to speak hard words so we don't... Uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If the pulpits are feather dusters instead of jackhammers, what we're doing is just grooming the next generation of people to not know any better, not act any better. Okay? So we need hard words about this kind of stuff. Churches that get soft on this are going to get what they're aiming for. And as a rule, I would say we hit our target. If you're aiming for softness, you're going to get it. Okay? If you're aiming to do better in the next generation, for the most part, you're going to hit it. Okay? And I would suggest churches, increasingly we're seeing that, are hitting their targets. We're getting what we're aiming for. Okay? And so there can be absolutely no accommodation to this whatsoever. That doesn't mean these people are beyond the grace of God, not at all. But it does mean there is zero accommodation of this stuff. It's idolatry. Okay? It, and it starts at thanksgiving. It starts at thanking God for your struggles so that you don't start to serve the creation. So you don't fall in love with a mirror. Okay? To bring it back to providence and God's suffering. Suffering is there to keep us soft, to keep us thankful to the God who lives so we don't go down the Romans 1 trail. And I'll stop there. I get fired up about this stuff because it's very real life. Yep. Yeah, so this is that question again, what if, what's God's place when we're talking about evil? Uh, and here's how I would answer that. Uh, if we think, and we, if we mean it with the expression, there but for the grace of God go I, we need to really mean that. The human heart from the fall the factory setting on every human heart is to love sin and to reject God. Okay? So the factory setting on our hearts is for ourselves and against God. And so think of your sin, not just yours, but all of our sin, as take every sin imaginable. We are running towards it at 100 miles an hour, completely unrestrained. There's not... If it wasn't for the grace of God, there is not a single sin that wouldn't be appealing to you. Okay? And so for me, is same-sex attraction something that's remotely appealing? Not at all. But that's not because I got wired right. <laughs> it's because God's grace is restraining me in that area. Okay? So without the grace of God, we are chasing every 
conceivable sin at 100 miles an hour. And God, in his grace, restrains that sin at many places, even for unbelievers. Okay, and I've used the example, Hitler killed 6 million. Could he have killed 600 million? Absolutely, he could have. Okay, so God is, God's grace is like a dam holding sin back in creation, even among unbelievers. And he lets it out here and here sometimes to do certain things, to show us things, to get power over it. Uh, but the default setting of our heart always wants sin. And so for God to say he gave us up essentially means I'm not holding that sin back here anymore. I'm going to open up the dam at this spot so you can get a taste of what it is that you really want. And so when God gives us up, I really, I really believe he's giving us more rope. He's giving Pharaoh more freedom, not less. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's not because God is uh, removing freedom from, Harrow, from Pharaoh and he's pulling him in. Uh, giving Pharaoh more freedom is what hardens Pharaoh's heart. Because Pharaoh's like the rest of us. He hates God. He's at war with God. Uh, so to me, that is, uh, that is how I understand both the providence of God over all things and the fact that he hardens hearts, not by planting evil, but by withdrawing his grace. Okay? You guys want to do it this way? I'll give you 100 years, see how it works out for you. And here's how it's working out for us. I don't know, does that answer the... Can we see it that way? See, and here's where your theological presuppositions direct things, because if we're born morally good or morally neutral, for God to harden someone's heart would have to mean he's planting evil in there. And God can't do that. Okay? It says in James, he doesn't tempt anyone. In him, there's no darkness at all. So God can't plant fresh evil in a good person's heart. That's not what hardening Pharaoh's heart is. Hardening Pharaoh's heart is, I gave you 20 feet of chain, here's 20 more. That's how he hardens Pharaoh's heart. That's how he gives a society up and people up. So the doctrine of original sin is a big deal when it comes to this. You lose the doctrine of original sin, you've got big problems with texts like this. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Read your passage and then we'll bring it in for landing. Okay, so here he's looking at Israel, how this happens. How does Israel get all these promises, all these prophets, and the Messiah, and who uniquely rejects him? Those people. They uniquely reject him. And that reaches a crescendo point. Um, and I believe if we keep going in Romans 11, I believe... Grace is coming for these people, but there is an extended generation upon generation of hardening that is upon them for their unbelief. And so when we think about the high providence of God, um, Calvin himself says there's nothing that keeps people from believing apart from their own unbelief. Okay? God's not stopping anyone 
Okay? Does he overcome the unbelief of some? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. That's what we mean by irresistible grace. Uh, but he doesn't harden people. Let's close in prayer, and then we can have some coffee time. Father God, thank you for your kindness to us. Uh, thank you that we can discuss these things. Thank you that you've not left us in the dark, but you've given us your word. Uh, thank you for the discussion here. I pray that we would internalize these things, that we would grow deeper in your word, that we would be more thankful ultimately to you. Lord, and really that's what this is all about, is being thankful, seeing your hand in things, giving thanks to you and staying soft. Lord, I pray for softness of heart for all of us. I pray for teachability, and I pray that you'd be with us as we move to a corporate worship. I pray that you would be glorified, that we would be built up, uh, and that your spirit would be with us here as we go about our things this morning. Thank you for your kindness, and we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.